0: You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson.
1: Hey, Live Different Podcast listeners, are you looking to get out of your comfort zone, put the things that we talk about on the Live Different Podcast into practice? If so, come and check out Under 30 Experiences and travel the world. Under 30 Experiences is open to ages 21 to 35. Come down and visit me in the jungle of Costa Rica, Go and explore Mayan ruins in Mexico and Belize. Hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Go to street parties in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Come to see the historical colonial city of Cartagena, Colombia. Drink wine in France. Go down to Barcelona. Uh, Why not check out Ireland and Scotland and London Glacier Walk in Iceland, we go all over the place, Bali, Indonesia, I can't remember where else we go, but there are amazing places for you to check out, and I suggest that you do. I'm the co-founder of Under 30 Experiences, and if you put in the code Different upon checkout, you'll get $100 off. So go to under30experiences.com, get out of your comfort zone, travel to a faraway land, And meet new people. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Live Different podcast. I am your host, Matt Wilson, and today we are here with Tim Sanders. The author of Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. Tim is an old school, under, under 30 CEO interviewee who uh, I have to say, uh, I reached out to Tim and told him that he was probably my very favorite interview that I've ever done since my whole life, since 2008. I guess I've been around for longer than the last eight years, but uh, Tim, it was a pleasure to have you, and we actually republished your old school interview on the Live Different Podcast somewhere around episode five or six, just because I enjoyed it so much and uh, you told me some stories about Mark working with Mark Cuban and some stories uh, basically, you just set me straight and uh, you if anybody is interested in that, you can Google Tim Sanders an under thirty CEO or uh, we'll drop it in the show notes, and you can see me with short hair in New York uh, while I am now here in Costa Rica with long hair. Uh, so with that warm welcome, Tim, what's going on?
0: Dude, Matt, I think I'm going to go um, Yoda meets Dr. Phil with you again.
1: All right. I, uh, All right. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to it. You, you set me straight, but, uh, but good last time.
0: Oh, we had a good time, buddy. It's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, good to good to talk to you. Um,
1: I have read a couple of your books. Uh, one, one of which that I've read, I think I've read it twice or three times, maybe even. And mm. I know that my mom has read it as well and that is Today We Are Rich, Harnessing the Power of Total Confidence and uh, when you recommend a book to your own mother, you know it was a good book and that book had stories about your grandmother, which I remember yes. very vividly, which I think about every so often I, I think about that book and uh, yeah, so, so you've left an impact I know on our under 30 CEO readers and uh, yeah, I'm just glad to have you back and, and chat with you for a little while
0: well, I'm I'm glad to be back, and 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 for those listening today, we are Rich chronicles the stories and the life of the great Billy King. Um, she's my grandmother. She raised me on a farm. Um, there's a big backstory here, but basically, she transferred to me principles of lifestyle design for confident thinking that she picked up after the Great Depression as a kid and it made a huge difference in my life when i was younger it made a huge difference in my life through various crises whether they were economic or otherwise and i got to say matt the first principle it has never been more true than it is today in 2017 and that first principle is feed your mind good stuff
1: yeah i like i like that one that's one that i that i think about all the time, all the time, and I constantly have put that in practice. Uh, Tim, what are you feeding your mind? What exactly do you mean by that?
0: The idea here is that you should be just as judicious about what you put into your mind as what you put into your body. There is so much Candy and toxic poison out there for you to read for you to listen to for you to tune into For you to hang out with for you to be connected with on your Facebook feed Matt, I believe it's a miracle when people have a positive mindset during these days. Uh, You know the premise of that whole chapter is that positive thinking is the result of very conscious lifestyle design in particular very conscious media consumption Design. So let me ask, answer your question. Now, 2017. What do I put into my mind? Um, I read long-form books. There are a few sources of journalistic information that I like to read to make me better at my job or help my friends and colleagues get better at their job. Um, I look at minimum current event news, just enough to make me a decent citizen, but not enough to make me crazy in the head. I do not watch cable television. I do not listen to talk radio. I do listen to a few really good podcasts. Um, and I'm just, I'm just very careful that I put nutrients, builders, unbiased information into my mind, and I'm very distrustful of so many in the media um, that sell clickbait. So, for example, Absolutely. you know, I'm on Facebook because I have to promote my speaking business and my books that I sell, etc. But, dude, I go there to post. I have a private group that's for other lecture circuit people. There's another group I belong to for authors. I don't look at my newsfeed. Headline porn will make you stupid. You know what I mean? So I tell people all the time, you know, you've got to be really, really careful in how you design your daily. And you might want to unfollow or unsubscribe to some things you're putting into your head. Because here's the basic psychology. You can't betray your thoughts. You put enough gloom and doom and hatred and division into your mind... And it will take over your subconscious, and it will determine your reflexes, and it'll change your ability to respond from adversity, and it'll absolutely take away that forward torque when you get up every day and you have that first conversation with yourself in the mirror getting ready, you know, because I think the punctuation to all of this, Matt, is that success is not a destination. I've learned that over years and years. It is a direction, and the direction is forward. And it has all to do with what you put into your mind.
1: Man, I uh, I absolutely love what you're talking about. And I know that our podcast listeners are certainly familiar with this concept. And, uh, of course, uh, a lot of them have probably heard about Tim Ferriss's low information diet, uh, popularized in the four-hour work week. But uh, actually, shout out to, to Eric, I don't think he can hear me, but he's here in the office. He's the producer of the show, and he has an app, uh, and I'll have him put it in the show notes, but this app that eliminates your news feed. I think it's a Chrome plug-in, and you just can't – you can go on Facebook all day, which he he has to for his job, uh, but he can't see his news feed, and I think – little hacks like those are are incredible but uh yeah if you want to talk about lifestyle design uh that's that's a good you got to keep your your mind clean wouldn't you wouldn't you say
0: absolutely so three hours out of my working day i'm reading books i'm working out at the gym and I'm rehearsing the coming day or whiteboarding solutions. That's about three hours of my working day. Those are all lifestyle decisions I make um, that not only make me more healthy, of course, and more emotionally healthy, it moves me forward. I'm always reading a difficult book or learning a difficult topic. It's a great way for me, especially in my 50s, to continue to stretch myself. And the analogy I use is that it pushes all the other attention away that I could be giving to bad things. And the analogy I like to use is from the wonderful book, Michael Pollan's um, book on food, um, in defense of food. And he talks about the idea when he's talking about red meat, for example. And he says, hey, you know, in the United States, it's not red meat that makes us so unhealthy. It's the portion size, right? So the big, huge steak pushes all the vegetables off the plate. And when I read that, And I thought about it. I'm like, man, if you get up every day and you load your mind with well-written long-form content that solves intellectual problems or opens up your horizon, and you treat your body right, and you give yourself some time to think, plan, and rehearse, I'm saying you push everything else off the plate, like hatred and fear and anxiety and you know, being jealous of another person or another company's success. So it's a really good defense mechanism against the world we live in today.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I know a lot of my podcast listeners have heard about habits uh, that I practice, but then also that all our our, uh, guests practice and, and share and uh, what they're doing every day and, and also just the, their health of their actual brain, just like you said, okay, putting stuff into their bodies and putting stuff into their mind. Well, those two things intersect at a certain point. And, yep. you know, if you're talking about, okay, drinking your high quality, uh, coffees and eating good fats for your brain and, uh, you know, staying away from alcohol and sugar and, uh, have a go you had me till me- the alcohol yeah, anyway, i'm every- on board hey, with everything else i so. hear you you need some social lubrication once in a while some mm-hmm. problem solving lubrication and and that helps take you out of the uh out of yeah. your normal state you know and so yeah. so there is some merit to that uh to a point of course but uh, absolutely tim i mean there's a point where this this all intersects and uh yeah you got to feed yourself as as you said uh feed yourself feed your mind good stuff and and that's that that's so important in today's day and age especially just coming out of this election season my god mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I couldn't... uh... Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very crazy times, and I believe that during these divisive times, we need your effectiveness more than ever. If you can focus on the things you can control, influence people on the things that move the mission forward, I really think that right now you can make the biggest difference you'll ever make your entire life. And I say that with no political you know, stake you know, on either side. I'm not saying it from any one of those perches. I'm just saying it as a business person.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Tim, I want to get into the actual nitty-gritty of what are you feeding your mind?
0: Um, I am reading um, a book right now by Michael Lewis, and um, it's called The Undoing Project. Have you read about that book?
1: No, I love Michael Lewis,
0: though. So um, yeah, the the un, well yeah you love everything that's so after Michael Lewis wrote Moneyball, a bunch of people uh, reached out to him and said, hey, you didn't invent anything new. Um, there were these guys, these uh, Israeli psychologists forty years ago, um, Daniel uh, Kahneman and Amos Tversky, and they did a bunch of original studies. Um, And it was all about undoing our assumptions about the decision-making process. And these were um, ex-Israeli Army Air Force guys that applied everything to psychology, problem-solving, and they really figured out what makes us have errors in the way we make decisions. And it's a really intriguing book about a friendship, about a a project— um, but it's the, rev- it's the basis of big data. And so if you read it, I just think it's a really good way to stretch the way you think. And I was just, I was just thinking about one of my favorite quotes. Uh, uh, Amos Tversky talked about the idea that, you know, it's important to be confident in front of other people, but your self-doubt about the things you're so sure of is the greatest way you become a lifelong learning, constantly improving person. It's like you have to doubt the things you hold the dearest – you have to embrace challenges to your point of view by other psychologists or scientists, not as an attack, but as a growth opportunity. And I totally believe that when you adopt that point of view, you're gonna be a better decision maker and you're gonna make a lot less regrettable errors in your life.
1: Okay, Tim, so could could you help me connect the dots here? So I'm, I'm running a business right now. We uh, own a, uh, basically, a. a tour company is what it's called in the industry, but we say it's a a community, a travel community for young people ages 21 to 35, and we bring them all over the world from Costa Rica to Machu Picchu to Bali, Indonesia to Iceland and France and spain and and uh, you know our team is is growing on on coming up on fifteen people uh, at the moment and could you tell me how I can constantly while running a small business, a startup, how I can continually be questioning everything that I think is true and how that could help me
0: well, I don't know if you need to continuously question everything okay, but I think that you should periodically doubt some of the things that you hold so dear to you um let me kind of break it down for you so if you think about quality whether it's the quality of a product or the quality of a travel experience quality is all the benefits minus the pains in the ass times two i want you to think about that so everything you do great in your business i just You have to understand that the things you get wrong actually can frequently outweigh it. In fact, in manufacturing, we believe that quality is simply freedom from defect and variance. There is no attribute you say is high quality, looks nice, feels nice. It doesn't vary from the design. It is not error, you know, it doesn't have errors. Okay, so transfer it to your business. You're a leader of a business. Your leadership excellence is predicated on you not making errors in judgment, right? So when your decision-making breaks down and something has diverted your attention and clouded your perspective, whatever, um, you're gonna make mistakes and those mistakes are gonna hurt your tour operation every single time. So when a person has a perspective, something they hold true, the way to think about it, Matt, is that when you're operating a business, you have a story you tell yourself of what can never work, that's called your constraints, and what always works, that's called your best practices. And it's really important to revisit both of those sets of arguments on a frequent basis, right? Because think about it this way. When you look at companies that get disrupted by technology, what they got wrong is the constraints they thought they operated under, okay? Blockbuster didn't believe you could create a profitable business through mail order until it was too late, okay? Yellow Cab didn't believe that people would trust an app on their phone to get a taxi till it was too late. These people operate under constraints that may have been true in 1985 or 1995, but all of a sudden they go away. And that's what makes people and leaders and companies and services obsolete. So I want you to think about your tour operation company, and I want you just to write down like what are the three constraints, like things we can't do, things that we just don't have the resource to do. And I want you to be very worried that there's some other company that's going to solve one of those constraints before you know it's solvable and they'll create an alternative to what you do that'll really hurt the business. Okay, so Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples just to bring this to life, just to show you what I mean. Sure. So you know I was at at Yahoo for a long time, so I work for Cuban. Cuban sells the company Uh, to Yahoo. I go to Yahoo. I'm the CSO there till you know, late 2004. So I'm I'm there during the whole Google thing when Google was two guys at Stanford to taking, you know, what, 40% of our search business, like, I'm snapping my fingers, like this. Well, let me tell you what happened. We truly believed... That there was the, the constraint that we were under is that search results could not, by their nature, be vetted for quality because we were in a duke it out battle with HTML designers that were hiding keywords in their pages, and no matter how many times Alta Vista or whoever was serving us, they changed their algorithm. When you search for something, you still got junk. If you remember search before Google, it didn't work. And we were just kind of resigned to that. And we said, okay, since you really can't fix it, we're gonna have the most results. So we went with quantity. And then somewhere along the way, Larry Page figured out that if you created an algorithm, which he calls PageRank, that would look at incoming links to website from credible sources and create that kind of approach, you could actually solve the quality issue largely. And it wouldn't be a matter of how many results came up, it would be a matter of whether those results on the first page solved your problem half the time. And that was Larry's vision. Not the tenth page of search results, the first page. It worked so well, they went on to cannibalize our ad business by adding paid search results on that first page that solves the problem 50% of the time. Okay, we could have done all of this. And when the Google guys come to us for a million bucks, and I can't tell you what percentage of the company they would have given us for a million bucks at the time, but it was sizable. It makes Alibaba look like a low investment. (laughs) We, we, We didn't do it. Because we said that they don't get it. You can't solve the quality issue. It's about quantity, and it killed us, okay? And I could give you more stories, but I hear about it all the time. So whatever, whatever thing you think you can't do as a, as a business owner, you need to revisit that and see if something's changed because that's where disruption comes from. And then all the greatest hits you think work day in and day out, you need to worry about whether your customer or prospect has developed a tolerance for that innovation, because all things that work are temporary. I tell this to people all the time. You hear about a social selling, I'm sure you've heard about it, where they're telling everybody in, in, in B2B sales, you know, all you got to do is like sell over LinkedIn, right? In mail people really good letters. Uh, react to their content, share their stuff. There's a novelty to all this. And the reason that social selling works is the same reason that telemarketing worked and email marketing worked for a long period of time is that there's a newness to it that goes away. So that's what I mean. And when I read a book like The Undoing Project, that's what I kind of take away from it at the high level um, is that we have to undo the way we think uh, to avoid um, errors in judgment, which can determine our success.
1: Absolutely. And, and Tim, I really appreciate the way that you look at uh, the topic of mindset. And I was thinking while you were, while you're speaking there about this is so applicable, this concept is so applicable to uh, business, of course, but also to people's personal lives and mm-hmm. uh, you know, people could, at home could write down the three things that they don't think that they are capable of and, and rethink those things. Uh, do you have any applications into, into how this could work in someone's uh, personal life?
0: Well, I think, it's, I think it's a great thing to do. I, think that I, I like to look at it mostly in professional terms. So I do think that it is a yearly thing a leader should do is revisit the three key constraints that define what they cannot do and what they have to work around. Whatever those constraints are, right? So for example, think about me. So um, I'm I'm a consultant slash speaker slash author. And so I go, well, my number one constraint is the fact that I can't delegate my work to any other person. Like the primary content production only I can do. That's a constraint I operate under. Can you see already that Tim Ferriss would be like, no, it's not. Um, Then the second constraint I have is that I am limited to physical travel for live events. Um, and uh, by the way, tomorrow I'm doing a video Skype appearance at an Irish conference, 6:30 a.m. here my time. Solving that constraint and expanding my business. I could go on, but you know, I started this exercise even before I read about um, uh, these guys the, the, and, and this this research on the Undoing Project. I just kind of naturally fell into this. From my, my experience, just being with businesses um, that did not do this and just got disrupted out of the blue.
1: Sure, absolutely. No, that, that makes perfect sense, and that's, that's an excellent exercise. Uh, Tim, you, you touched on, on leadership, and I know this is your forte, and uh, so I just wanted to, to ask you about leadership in general and where the biggest maybe areas for improvement that you see with, with young leaders today are.
0: I think that, um, I think that your, your most precious asset is your attention. People of the last generation would tell you it's your time, and it's not, because there's so much technology, so much collaboration, so much out there sourcing available to you to stretch time and space. But what you don't have much of is attention, and where you put attention is what you consider important. What you consider important drives your priority schedule, and that determines your cadence. A leader is a good leader because he or she has good cadence. It's agile and fast enough for the market's demand. It's believable enough for the followership, and it moves the enterprise forward. So let me tell you in in very direct terms, the younger leaders today need to employ the right type of curiosity and kill the wrong type of curiosity. Sam Walton had a saying at Walmart, curiosity doesn't kill the cat, it kills the competition. Your curiosity about how things work in this world and why things do or don't work and what your customer really wants, those curiosities, they stoke your desire to learn. And I'm telling you as a leader, learning power is earning power, it's just true. The more you learn, the faster you go and the more successful your organization is and it all comes from curiosity. Here's the problem, there are two types of curiosity because I kind of took a deep dive down that rabbit hole and studied it, Um, one type of curiosity is called um, Diversive Curiosity. Diversive curiosity usually solves boredom. You just want something different. You know, the shiny new object. When you are working on a spreadsheet on an important project and you stop working on the spreadsheet, open up Safari, and just take a peek at your Facebook feed, that is Diversive Curiosity or you're maybe checking on your favorite news site or your favorite sports site to see if there's breaking news. That's a type of curiosity. And years ago before we had media everywhere around us, including user-generated media that's close to us, it really wasn't a big threat I mean, you'd literally have to pick up the newspaper in your office and pop it open to take that little diversion or you'd have to go turn the television on in the break room. But today, Diverse Curiosity is being fed everywhere. Every one of your devices gives you the opportunity to pursue something that has absolutely nothing to do with your leadership challenge and it gobbles up your precious attention. The second type of curiosity, the one that you have to become disciplined towards chasing, is epistemic curiosity, epistemic meaning with purpose. So when I read a book, I read a book with purpose. When I decide to study a subject, like I say, I studied curiosity as a subject, I studied it with a purpose. It had all to do with the next book I was writing. It had all to do with some of my talking points from my lectures. So there was a reason behind it and what the purposeful curiosity will do is it will expand your resume every year. It will correctly employ your attention. And, And frankly, Matt, it will give you a ginormous competitive advantage in this nonstop shiny new world we live in and your competitors are living in.
1: Okay, I I like this concept a lot and uh, I really appreciate how you say, learning power is earning power. And then when you dive into into curiosity, there's, okay, so, to to lay out an example, okay, yeah, you open up your Facebook and Kim Kardashian's there, and blah blah blah. That's the that's the uh, to generalize the bad curiosity, the curiosity, the the quick hit of dopamine rush. As a uh, as a former podcast yes. guest, Bill Harris would say, it's that it's that sugar rush from the cupcake mm-hmm. because you were curious what it might taste like, or uh, the thing right. that got you into trouble. Now. Another type of curiosity would be for example the curiosity uh, that I have about my own human body and this weekend I spent countless hours at like a like a geek himself Cross referencing my, my DNA, my genetic results from 23andMe.com, this this company that sequences your genome to see what yeah. types of uh, diseases I was susceptible, what vitamins uh, susceptible to, what vitamins my body processed well and didn't process well. Very interesting stuff. And then I had a uh, a blood test from another uh, startup called Wellness FX, and I was able to cross reference the two and see parallels and it was absolutely fascinating and I can totally see how this could help my productivity and uh the word you used I think was epistemic curiosity and and that's going to come out and and better myself am I am I on it here Tim
0: you're absolutely on it So as you chase a rabbit hole, let's say that you see some link and you're gonna click on the link and it introduces you to a topic and you say I wanna know more about him, I wanna know more about this startup and you're going to Mashable and then you're going to TechCrunch and all of a sudden two hours went away. What I want you to tell yourself when you first decide to click on the very first link out of your newsfeed is what's in it for me? As a leader for my organization, what is the application of this? If the answer is none, I just want to research chemtrails for another four hours. Um, Not that that's not relevant, but I can't change it. So, you know, as a leader, that's not... So that happens to people all the time. So sometimes it's like very... It seems very innocuous. It's like something that's kind of interesting. You'll see some headline that says, this leader didn't get this right and all of his employees quit. And he clicks on the article and it's some stupid thing about, you know, payroll transparency. You need to ask yourself pretty much early on, is this going to apply to some problem i'm working on now or some resume item i'm trying to add later and that's what i always ask so when i considered buying the undoing project i had to catch myself and say now tim are you buying this michael lewis book because you like the blind side as an entertaining read or are you buying this book because it has an application to your ongoing psychology education and i truly believe that understanding the relationship behind the undoing project was worth reading a book that would take eight hours. I made a very purposeful decision about what I was going to employ my curiosity against.
1: Okay, absolutely. So coming back to that exercise of asking what's what's in there, what's in this for me, and then making sure that you do it with purpose, with intention.
0: Protect your attention. And, and I'll say this finally to put a bow on this. So as a leader, If you found some hack that saves you some time, maybe you saved an hour by doing something or whatever, just make sure you're reinvesting that time and attention into something useful because I find that too often we adopt time-saving techniques and then squander what we saved on some other thing that we didn't anticipate. So just reinvest your attention very thoughtfully and that's where you're really gonna build that competitive advantage. Okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, I got an hour free because I hacked my, uh, inbox. Now I'm going to have one more hour for Kimmy K, uh, tabloid headlines. Yeah. Right. Got you. Catch up on
0: pitchfork. Catch up on pitchfork releases I've been missing. Yeah.
1: There you go. Okay. So uh, Tim, I think that is a great exercise in self-discipline. Do you have any other self-discipline practices that you employ or that you could, uh, talk to the under 30 audience a little bit about?
0: Yeah, uh, this is out of the new book, Deal Storming, which is about problem solving um, at the deal level. Um, One of the things I've learned is that when you think you have a problem, I really want you to vet that you're talking about the root cause of your problem and not just a symptom. Too often, business leaders end up solving symptoms, not the root cause of a problem, and their business is like whack-a-mole. As soon as they get one thing fixed, something else pops up. So here's a discipline, and it comes from the quality movement out of Toyota in Japan in the 60s, but it works like magic. It's called the five whys. So when something is going wrong in your business, and I'll make this up, so tour operatorship, uh, somebody comes to you, not that this would happen, but say somebody comes to you and says, hey, dude, um, we've had a series of three-star reviews on TripAdvisor, and that's not good.
1: You're never gonna has ask, never you're happened gonna ask, to us, Tim. Yeah, <laughs> But one day, that, one day. That, but <laughs> but it,
0: you never know, okay? Yeah. Um, so now what you have to do is you have to peel back the onion and find out why. Because too often we say, okay, well, let's go have a relationship with TripAdvisor so they can filter those, you know, like Yelp or whatever. You're, you're just going after a symptom. You need to ask yourself, well, why do you think they gave us three-star reviews? You're going to get an answer. And then you need to ask Why? behind that answer. So let's just say that all of them, and I'm just making this up, all of them gave three-star reviews because of scheduling conflicts, like everything seemed disorganized to them. So then you have to ask yourself, why did everything seem disorganized to them? And you might answer the question, is like, well, we've been doing everything with apps, but we had a technology glitch so we used paper and we were relying on someone in New York to coordinate and it didn't really work out. Okay, then why did we have that technology glitch? Because all you can do is move forward, right? And then the person would say, well, you know, we were using a bunch of third-party stuff to save a little bit of money. And now you ask the magic why. Why are we doing this to save money? Well, you know, two years ago, our budget was only ten grand for IT. And you're like, but our business is $3 million now. Why haven't we increased the budget? Because we've literally never had a problem until now. So the solution you discovered was that you needed to increase your IT budget to prevent this from happening again. That's the fifth Why? In quality management, 80% of the time, the root cause of a business problem is revealed on the fifth why. Dude, that takes discipline. It's so easy to accept the first or second why. The first one, it all seemed disorganized to them. Well, they were wrong. (laughs) That's what we always say. They're highly wrong. Um, or the second one, where we say, well, we relied on this guy out of New York. You're going to blame that guy. No, uh, you're going to keep having that problem as long as you have a low budget, but you got kind of to peel the onion back. So you've got to have the discipline as a leader to ask why till you get to the root cause. You may get there with the three or four whys, but generally speaking, keep asking why till there's no more why to answer, and you will be a master problem solver.
1: Okay, okay, absolutely. And, and Tim, that was actually a pretty darn good uh, a- example of very, very close to, uh, very close to home that one hit. Um, we've got a we've got a snowstorm coming into to New York as you've probably heard and we're running two trips here down to the tropics and uh, there's flights getting canceled left and right. And uh, well, we have been doing manual data entry for the first five years of our company because that's what the budget allowed for. And we never spent thousands upon thousands of dollars on booking softwares because simply that we couldn't afford it. I mean, some of these things are thousands of dollars per month and uh, we're trying to provide a, a good, product at a good price but when when it's manual data entry and you're trying to reorganize these things i completely hear you why we have to continue to to ask ourselves why and uh and over and over again and doing it as a practice uh and i think it it, part of your your in your professional life and in your personal life too I, i really believe this would this would work tim i wanted to ask you how can I'll just ask you about myself personally? How can I stop running around playing whack a mole all the time? As as you said, because problems arise, uh, and whether you're listening and you're a business owner or not, uh, things pop up every day. And we're talking about atten uh, attention, and we're talking about being attentive uh, and intentional when you're doing things and throughout your day having self-discipline not for a slack message to pop up and you say oh god I got to get do this or a a text message to come and say oh god I got to run and do this because you can make yourself crazy Uh, how can one combat that Tim
0: I think I think the secret is first of all when you deal with problems and you do it every day I want you to slow down and invest 25% of your time finding the root cause. Commit yourself to clarifying the problem. There's just just so much great research that suggests if you define the problem right, you've usually solved the problem. So integrate that into your decision-making. Stop trying to do everything on your own, okay? You're not on a hero's journey. You're dealing with a team challenge. Genius is a team sport. Find other people that care about the outcome as much as you do and let them collaborate with you. And as a leader, champion the concept that ideas can come from anywhere. Because in my experience, the most innovative ideas come from the edges of an organization. They could be like the personal assistant to your tour guide in the field observing something that you guys would never see. And if you'll create an environment for him to reveal that in a meeting that you called to solve a problem, you're going to find breakthroughs. But if you try to do it on your own and you operate as a leader with the belief that you are the brain and you are surrounded by hands, you're going to be slow and you're going to have repeat errors all the time. You just will.
1: I could not agree more. And, and how can you teach people to to be problem solvers? You know, people often, they uh, – they, uh, our guides on our on our tours their tour managers or there they have an office job but how do you teach them to be real problem solvers i always say hey look you guys are smarter than i am especially collectively especially so you guys can solve this problem what how can i teach people to do that
0: well I think what you need to do, Matt, is create a culture where people know that's what they're supposed to do, right? Because culture is a conversation led by leaders and punctuated by stories, real stories, that define how we do things here successfully, okay? So it's 2 prong. The first thing you got to do is talk about it. So when I was working at cubansbroadcast.com, we were a scrappy startup that was trying to beat big companies like Microsoft for broadcast deals, and it was real problematic, this audio video streaming, back in 1997. So you know we learned from the example of that culture that when you get stuck, you go wide, you find other people that care about the outcome, you create a team. And you meet often and give credit widely and you keep meeting until you solve the problem and you put pressure on yourself to go faster. And all we had to do was like win some really big accounts and really overcome some big technology challenges as teams for everybody to learn culturally, you never try to be a hero. And so, you know, what you've got to do, Matt, is you've got to define some situations where there's a high stakes problem and you got to force them to work together as a team and have the person who's the closest to the problem be the leader of that team. And really coach them to be transparent, to keep everybody in the loop, and to make sure that everybody can live with the solution. And when you win and you solve that problem, you've installed a real tent pole in your culture around teamwork. And it's going to take time. There's no training program that's going to pull this off. It's about doing the hard things right and remembering to tell that story, that's how you shape a culture that endures, especially one that's collaborative.
1: Okay, excellent. Well, the timing couldn't be better with the storm coming up because, uh, you know, I don't want to, first of all, I don't want to be up half the night uh, coordinating all all of everybody's flights, right? As I probably could, but I bet there are people in the organization that can solve this better than I can, yeah. and that they'll understand and, and be empowered to say, okay, we don't need to call Matt and ask, what's, uh, hey, how do I deal with this? Okay, well, you guys come up with the, the policies and how mm-hmm. you want to treat travelers on a case by case basis. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's about empowerment.
0: I'm yep, s- that's exactly what it is.
1: Excellent, excellent. So, Tim, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your new book, uh, Deal Storming, as you said, or as I said earlier, it's the secret weapon that can solve your toughest sales challenges, but could you tell us a little bit more about the book?
0: Absolutely. So, Deal Storming answers the bell on what most sales leaders are dealing with today, business to business, and that is the process is very complicated, You've got a lot of decision makers. You've got a lot of obstacles that stand between you and the done deal. So I've learned that rapid problem solving is now the secret to sales success. And over the last 15 years, uh, first at Yahoo, then later as a consultant, I built the methodology for rapid problem solving. I call it deal storming. Think of it as brainstorming for challenges that concern money. Whether it's a sales deal, whether you're trying to raise money for your startup, whatever it is, success is 100 problems solved. But the issue here is that just throwing people in a room and saying have a brainstorm is not a good strategy. A lot of times brainstorming turns out like a goat rodeo, you know, no one knows what to do, they don't have any time to incubate solutions, no one owns action, so it doesn't go anywhere. Deal storming is a very particular process that says, okay, we've qualified the opportunity as being so strategic and difficult, we need to create a team. We've organized a team around a mission and everybody cares about lending their expertise. We've prepared everyone with plenty of time to incubate so we can truly be creative. When we run meetings, we always focus on the next play. We execute everything in two-week sprints. We scrutinize everything that we do to see if there's another way we can approach this problem. And then finally, We report to everyone on the team and throughout the company as to how it's going and what the next steps are. That's a seven-step process that will absolutely help you dramatically lift your closing rates on big deals or secure funding uh, even when times look tough. Uh, That's what the new book's about. It's about sales innovation through collaboration and teamwork.
1: No, that, that sounds really interesting. Tim, can you, can you elaborate a little bit more on the two week sprints and why you decide uh, to sprint when they, so many people say, oh, it's a marathon, uh, but when you got to close a deal, you got to close a deal, I guess. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah.
0: Well, so when you're working on a deal, there's really four levels. Think of it like a video game. Level one, is the contact level where you get in with people that can give you inside information and create that path to influencers and decision makers. Okay, that's level one. Now you're in, and I'm talking B2B here, like whatever, software, business solutions, et cetera. Um, now you gotta get to level two. You gotta conceive the prescription. Like, like what are you selling? What combination of products and services at what price, with what timing, and what contractual terms? You got to figure out whatever the win 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 deal is. Then, when you get through that level, which is very problematic, then you got to convince this prospect that they got to make a change. And then, once you convince them that they got to make a change, you got to convince them you're the best change agent because your number one competitor is the status quo. So the convinced level is really tough. Then once they believe they gotta make a change and that you're the one to do that change, then you gotta move through the contract level where your way of doing business often clashes with their way of doing business, okay? Every one of these levels has multiple challenges, and if you don't have a sprint mentality, you will accept the fact that it takes 12 to 18 to 24 months to close your average big deal. That's a constraint, and it's not true anymore. The world's moving too quickly. That prospect could be bought by another company. They could go out of business. Your leads could leave the company. The market could have a new disruptive competitor out of nowhere that turns Feed a free. Speed is so important to being successful in a complicated selling environment. So when you say, if we've got a problem, we're going to have a meeting, and every time we're going to walk out of the room with the next play, the maximum length of time to execute is two weeks. If we could find a a, a shorter window for a simpler action that's 24 or 48, that's going to be defined as the sprint. But everything we do, we're going to stopwatch. I don't literally mean stopwatch, but I mean we're going to press, press, press to get it done quicker. And that doesn't mean you're sacrificing quality. That means when you're going to someone saying, I need you to give me some facts and figures on something, you need it. I want you to stay on the phone till you get it. You're not going to have these email back and forths where a Monday goes to a Friday to get a stupid, simple answer on something that you could have executed on Tuesday over. So you just have to have an impatient mentality about getting the next play done so that you can face the next problem. That sprint mentality is so important to taking money off the table in life and business.
1: Sounds good to me. I like like to sprint. What if I like to sprint a little bit too much, a little bit too fast? And, uh you know, occasionally I feel, I wouldn't say burned out, but I, 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 redli- yeah. I redline quite a bit. Uh, could you tell me maybe what you might do to, to combat something like that? Are you the same way?
0: I I am, but what I've learned is it's all about qualifying these sprints. Like you don't sprint for everything. Right. There are certain things that come along where it's not high priority and it's not that difficult and I want you to stay within your cadence because you don't want to wear people out. But there are going to be those game changer challenges. And if you can win, it's going to change everything. Those are the ones you got to sprint for. You know, the thing I worry more about with sprinting than burnout is just quality mistakes, right? We're going so fast we don't get stuff done right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I think it's really important that when we consider a solution, we have to ask ourselves, what is the key assumption behind this solution? And if we are really clear that the key assumption is true, we can move pretty quickly to prototype and execution of whatever the idea is at whatever level of the deal. And I think we can do it uh, with a high degree of quality. I also think that whoever the problem owner is in a situation at work, you need to own quality. Like you're like the chef that looks at the food before it goes to the table. You need to assume that accountable role. No matter how fast things are going, you will always be accountable to ensure quality. I think if you keep your eye on it and you're the problem owner, that's gonna be the ultimate filter um, that you know, prevents Sprint uh, from producing crap.
1: Okay, okay, and I, I wrote down right here, I wrote down what is the key assumption behind this, which is which yeah. is so important because if you're sprinting and you don't necessarily know that you're sprinting in the right direction, That's you it. could have a serious problem here. Okay, that uh, – You know, it's like yeah. the other
0: side of the problem, right? The key in problem finding is what? Root cause. Got to find the root cause. The key in solution finding is got to find the valid assumption,
1: Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I also appreciate that you, you said you don't want to wear your people out. And, uh, I have a, I have a quick question for you before we start to get, uh, approach the end of the show. Uh, how I, I'm a great problem finder, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm constantly trying to find my, uh, Feed my mind good stuff, but I walk around with quite a critical eye, and it doesn't matter if it's around the house, thinking that the uh, housekeeper could have done her job a little bit better, or going and and walking in and saying, "Oh, our sign's a little crooked uh, in front of her mm-hmm. office." Will somebody call somebody and <laughs> get them over here? And and you know, the, I guess you really it, it really depends what matters, and you have to prioritize, but. Uh, I really can find myself be pretty negative at times uh, and try not to express that, uh, only expressing that when it counts, but it's, it's a tricky balance when you're always the problem finder and then trying to maintain an upbeat and positive attitude and not not create a toxic place to work, you know.
0: Well I just think that you have to make sure and read your fan mail and don't give your critics PhDs. Um, you need to make sure and put in the success information as much as you put in the problem information and get that balance right. So, you know, the one prescription I would give you, Matt, is to read those positive reviews, contact those people, let them unpack it more. Um, It's really important for you to be focused on what you're getting right as much as what's going wrong. And it's up to you to find that balance. But too often we don't do that. We just gobble up all those five-star reviews like we deserve them in the first place. And what we do is get caught at that one-star, two-star review and lose our mind. So just find the balance in the information you choose to intake about your level of success and your level of adversity.
1: I really appreciate that, Tim, because uh, it's the it's the two four-star reviews that we've ever gotten, ever, in five years. And, uh, you know, all the rest have been five stars. And, of course, probably, I, it, you know, when I'm walking around thinking that, uh, oh, this housekeeper missed a, missed a spider web, how can we have travelers here? Okay, I guess that's a little maniacal, I will uh, – uh, maybe just laying off the gas a little bit would be great. Let's well, celebrating would you, that. Would you like
0: me to? Would you like me to leave a two-star review of you, kind of a fict- fictional one, just to kind of give you a little balance? Because I can log on right now and do that.
1: Yeah, Tim, I might fly off the handle. I don't know what I would do. <laughs> ah, don't tempt me, buddy. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, just make
0: sure and read your fan mail when you get down on things and when you worry about, you know, things. Just, just surround yourself with as much positive as you do problematic.
1: No, that's that's really good advice. I really appreciate that. I, I certainly needed that uh, needed that today. Thank you, thank you, Tim. Um, I I wanted to, to kind of wrap up and uh, and let you go here in a, a couple minutes, but um, I was hoping we we always try to end the show with a piece of overarching advice, and I know you do all the speaking uh, all over the world, and um, you know I've really appreciated your advice in the past. I was wondering. If somebody's out there listening, and personally or professionally, they really just need to, uh, maybe not a, not a kick in the pants, but something that you see that under 30s uh, and over 30s just need to be paying more attention to in this day and age. Have you got anything for us, Tim? Tim?
0: Um, I think that you need to focus on being an essential ingredient in the lives of those you work with. If you serve customers, you need to be an essential ingredient to that customer's total life, not just a good option. I believe that being a good option is a bad strategy in the world we live in today of new, new, new opportunities. So you need to strive to solve higher order problems. You need to be a mentor You need to be an essential ingredient of the companies you work for, because if you don't, you'll find that you were just a good option, and you'll get surprised by reorganizations and downsizing. The question is, how do we become an essential ingredient to other people? I think it's really three things, Matt. It's going to sound a little bit familiar to you, but the first thing the essential ingredient does is he or she is a fountain of knowledge to all those they work with. You curate really good, relevant information. You have a crisp way of sharing it at the right time for the right reasons. And everybody that spends time with you, you help them solve their biggest problems. The second thing you've got to do to be an essential ingredient, you've got to be a great connector whether you're connecting people or connecting opportunities, you need to be a really good listener that's always looking for those matches that you can make, because that's usually the solution to most people's problems. I think the third and final thing you've got to do is you've got to be a really good sounding board. You need to create an environment where people can share with you their struggles as well as their passions, and you judge neither. And you show them empathy. Because I find that When you hang out with people in business that inspire you, educate you, connect you, and listen to you, you can't do without them. And if you can become an essential ingredient in your professional life, the world will wait for you to catch up when the shiny new comes along and launches an innovation. Your companies will fight to keep you even during the most difficult times. So I think that's my number one piece of advice is don't settle for being a good option.
1: Tim, that sounds, that's fantastic advice. Uh, your book is Dealstorming: the secret weapon that can solve your toughest challenges. Is there anywhere where you'd like to uh, send our listeners today if they wanted to follow up or keep in touch with you?
0: Absolutely. So just go to timsanders.com. That's timsanders.com. You can do everything from find out about the new book, download a free chapter, or connect with me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. I'd love to hear from you all that are listening to this right now. So just hit me up on social. I'm here.
1: Sounds like a plan, Tim. Well, I really appreciate it. Yo, live different podcast listeners. You know what to do. You love the episode if you listened this far. Go to iTunes. Show us some love. Please. That's all we ask. A little five-star review. Just a little review. That's all we need. Send it to a friend who needs to get their ass in gear. We're trying to do good work here, and we need your help. Hey, you know what? Special offer. Send me an email personally. I will write back. Matt at under30experiences.com. I want to know your feedback, and then... I want to meet you in person, maybe our yoga retreat, maybe our fitness retreat, who knows? Check out under30experiences.com. Go do something awesome with your life.